uh, with Exodus in uh, chapter 4. So if you need a Bible, if you want to raise your hand, John can bring one out to you. Uh, First, kind of a quick summary, though, of where we're at in the story of the Exodus right now. Uh, I do want to point out that Tom mentioned how Exodus kind of, you know, when you're teaching through something, that book just sort of seems to keep popping up in everyday life. Exodus is, is definitely one of those books. It pops up no, not only in everyday life, but the story of Exodus is recounted again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, and it's also mentioned a lot in the New Testament as well. It has a lot of significance. Uh, the passage that we're going to be covering tonight in particular, there's one passage. It's, it's not a real fun passage to go over, uh, but it is also specifically called out in the New Testament as well. So we'll be taking probably most of the time looking at that, plus it also has a lot of personal significance to me. So, so far where we're at is that Joseph, his brothers, all the generation, the, the pharaoh of his time, uh, they've all since passed away. There's a new pharaoh around now. Uh, there's a new generation that's growing up, the Israelites. They're greatly increasing in number. And the new pharaoh is looking at him saying, hmm, you know, there's a lot of them. And if they were to join forces with our enemies, that could be a, a serious problem for us. So he decides he's going to take steps to start kind of keeping Israel in check, keeping the Hebrews in check. And so he starts enslaving them, persecuting them, mistreating them. Uh, he also goes to the point that he uh, commands the midwives, the Hebrew midwives. When you see a Hebrew woman who is giving birth and it's a boy, kill him. You're not supposed to let him live. Uh, at least two of the Hebrew midwives, we learn, they decide they're not going to do that. They're going to be obedient to God, not to Pharaoh. So they, the Hebrews continue to increase in population. So Pharaoh finally says, okay, every son born then, throw him into the Nile. We're going to take care of this issue once and for all. Moses is born. His mom hides him for a while, gets away with it for a while, and then realizes, I can't keep doing this. Eventually, he's going to be discovered. So she places Moses in a basket along the the banks of the Nile River where he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. She takes him in, raises him up as her own son, so he kind of has the, the best of the education going on. But we get the impression from what the word says that he's also very aware of his Hebrew roots. He knows where his background is at, who his family is. So one day he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses takes action and murders the Egyptian. He thinks that he's kept it a secret, but he didn't actually do a very good job of it. It's discovered. So he flees to Midian, where he meets a woman named Zipporah, ends up marrying her. They start a family. And one day while he's out pastoring God's flock, or God's flock, pastoring, uh, he does do that, but that's later on. While he's pastoring his father-in-law's flock, he's at Mount Horeb, and God appears to him in a burning bush and begins to have this conversation with him declaring to Moses, I have seen my people. I have heard their cries for help. I haven't forgotten them. And I'm going to send you to lead my people out of Egypt. And so that's kind of where we leave off. We're sort of right still in the middle of that meeting. It hasn't been wrapped up yet. So starting in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, I really wish they made the font in these Bibles smaller. That would be even more helpful. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. 
So he threw it on the ground, and, he became, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Pretty sure he already did that. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as a God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told him all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. 
And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in sight of all of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. All right, so looking at the first verse, again, we're still right in the middle of the, the conversation that has started off uh, in uh, actually chapter 3. The, the main theme that I see going on in this passage, and it's really carried out throughout all of Exodus, is God's sovereignty. And specifically in this passage, God is doing things to show that he is going to be the one doing these things, not mankind. He's just using mankind to do it. And the other thing I see is God is pointing out, he's God, not mankind, not anybody else. And so kind of keep that in mind as we go through this, but it will come up again and again as we continue on through the book of Exodus. So with these themes in mind, looking at the the first few verses here, starting in verses 1 through 9, we have these different signs uh, that God is talking about doing for Moses. Now, I don't know about the significance of all of the signs. I've looked at some of them. Some of them we see, some of them we don't. Uh, But it's still kind of interesting to me. My mind where it goes when I see the staff and the serpent is I, you know, I kind of consider what does, maybe does this have something to do looking back at Genesis 3? The fact that Satan presents himself or is at least described as presenting himself as a serpent to Eve. Does it have some sort of connection to that? Does it have some sort of connection in Genesis 7 uh, where we don't have the law established yet, but God in speaking to Noah calling the animals onto the ark. He's already making a distinction between clean and unclean animals. And we, we find out later on that serpents are an unclean animal. So, you know, does it have some sort of connection there? Uh, in Numbers 14, so this is much further on down the road, but in Numbers 14, Israel is now out of Egypt. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. They send out some spies and they become afraid because the people are giants in the land. So they lose faith in God and they say, we can't do this. We can't take these people on and enter into the promised land. So God becomes angry at them, and they end up having to to wander around in the desert until that generation dies off. And then during that time, while they're wandering around, this is in uh, Numbers 21, if you want to look, I'm going to go through it quickly. It says that, then they sent out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. That's the manna that God has given them, and they've just called it miserable food. And if you read through the story, you find that God becomes so angry with the people of Israel that he sends snakes in among the camp. And then when Israel confesses their sin, God tells Moses, take a pole, put a bronze serpent on it, and then anybody who looks to that bronze serpent can be saved. So is this, you know, the sign, is this somehow a foreshadow of some of the things to come? We don't really know, but what is being made clear in here is that the staff itself is not important. The staff is not magical, like Gandalf the Grey, the staff that he uses. It's not even magical like what we see used later on by Pharaoh's sorcerers themselves. So, you know, we're going to do Exodus 7 later on, but if you wouldn't mind jumping ahead just to Exodus 7 real fast so I can uh, point this out to you that it is not Moses' staff that is special. It is God that is special, and God is doing this miraculous work with the staff itself. 
So remember, God has told Moses, take your staff and do these signs. So in Exodus 7, starting in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle. So again, this is now Pharaoh who is saying, I, I want you to prove this to me. He says, Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. This is Aaron's staff now. This is not the staff that God originally changed from a staff into a snake and then back. So he says, Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called, also called for the wise men and the sorcerers and, and also the magicians of Egypt did the same thing with their secret art. So at this point, you might be kind of thinking, Ooh, maybe that wasn't such a good sign after all, because after all, they just... They just did the same thing. It'd be kind of like God saying, I'm going to prove your sign for proving that I sent you is uh, you're going to go out on the golf course and you're going to get a hole in one. And then Pharaoh brings out Tiger Woods. Yeah, that was pretty cool, but look what my guy can do, right? Suddenly it's not so impressive anymore. At first, you might, well, that was a really good shot. But then Tiger Woods comes out and does the same thing. So it doesn't look so impressive until you can keep reading on. It says, for each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, that's pretty impressive. That's like God just did a mic drop from heaven. Boom, you know, chest bump, pound it, noggin, see ya. So, do perfect if you know that one. So, anyways, Moses, essentially what just happened here is Moses' dad just beat up Pharaoh's dad, is essentially what's happened here. But the point is, it's not the staff. The staff is just a piece of wood. It has the ability through Moses only because God has granted that. And that's the sign. That's the answer to the question that Moses has stated right here in the very beginning. How can I prove that you sent me? And this is only one of the signs. The next one, the leprosy and the water into the blood. Again, my mind instantly goes to, well, leprosy for sure is a sign of uncleanness. Blood under certain circumstances is also a sign of uncleanness. So why is God using all these unclean things to show his power? You know, maybe there's some significance in there. Maybe there's not. I find it uh, really fascinating, uh, but it doesn't really say. It's just saying, this is how they'll know. You'll be able to do these things. So what's also interesting about uh, the leprosy event in particular is the, the staff and the serpent, Exodus 7, we just looked at. Same thing, water to blood, that also happens in there. We never see the account specifically of leprosy. It's, it's not named. In Exodus 9, there is an affliction of boils with sores. And if you look at the Hebrew words, they're pretty close, right? So leprosy, Hebrew, it's, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's tsara, something along those lines. Boils in the Hebrew word sheken. Uh, generically, shikan just means an inflamed spot. And if you've ever seen pictures of, of leprosy, it sure certainly causes inflamed spots on a person's skin. But the description in Exodus 9 is that it's much worse than that. So it might be leprosy accompanied with several other skin afflictions all at the same time itself. But I just find it interesting that there are these un unclean things that God is using, but it's still God that's doing it. It's not Moses. It's not his own power. It's not by the power of the staff or anything else. This is God clearly demonstrating, Moses, I am sending you. You have my uh, authority to go out and do these things. So if we uh, then continue on to verses uh, 10 through 17, 
Now, it says in here that Moses said to the Lord, he can't speak. And I've heard some people claim that Moses is actually lying here. He's been raised up in Pharaoh's household. He had the best education available. And he's really just trying to get out of it because he's scared. And, you know, he probably is scared. I, I would be scared doing something like this. I mean, don't you just get nervous if you feel like God is putting it on your heart to share the gospel with a coworker? It's kind of scary, doesn't it, right? And now here Moses is being told, you're going to go before Pharaoh, the guy who can take your life at any time. And you're going to be responsible for leading out all of my people. That's, that's pretty big weight that's being placed on to him. But we see that God becomes angry with him here. So we want to look at the context of it. And that's something you're going to hear me say a lot later on in one of the passages as well. So we really have to look at the context here and what is really it is that is going on. You know, I'm sure Moses is scared. But remember that in Exodus chapter 3, the part that's leading into this, God has already appeared to Moses in a burning bush. The bush is not being consumed. And Moses is talking to it face to face. He's already heard these commands coming out to him, declaring, I am going to be with you. I am not going to let anything happen. This is what is actually going to happen. And he lays it out for Moses. And then Moses has this other question. Well, God, what if they still won't believe? I mean, yeah, you told me your name and you said, tell them when they ask who sent you, say your name. I am who I am. But now goes, Moses is pushing a little bit further. He says, well, you know, kind of want some signs. After now he is seeing with his own eyes at that moment a staff turn into a serpent, a serpent go back into a staff, his hand become leprous from being clean, and then back, he's still now pushing back from God. And this really seems to be an act of disbelief, untrusting God, where he's not just afraid, he's just saying, yeah, but God, I don't, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can actually help me out here. Sorry, my nose is running. I got a cold. So it seems to be that Moses is, is not believing in God. He's not really on the same plan as him. He's more concerned about himself than trusting in God. And isn't that true in our own lives? When we know that God is calling us to do something and we don't because we're afraid, we're really more concerned about ourselves than doing what it is that God wants us to do. So I think we can all relate to Moses here, unfortunately, in some ways. But I think at the same time, we can also look to Moses as an example. I know it's more common in Christian culture, more popular to look at King David and say, yeah, but you know, there's a guy that was, he's, he's described as a man after God's own heart but yet he's an adulterer and he's a murderer, but yet God still used him. Well, Moses is a murderer as well too, and he's afraid. And we're going to see some other mistakes come up here as well as much later on in Exodus as well too. One of them that's coming up, God is so angry with him, he decides, I'm going to kill Moses. I'm going to put him to death. But yet he still ends up using Moses in incredible ways, and we should remember that as well too. So, you know, if it's something as simple as God saying, hey, yeah, I want you to go talk to somebody. I want you to share the gospel with them. I want you to do, you know, whatever it is. We should be able to look back at here and see these things and take courage in it and, and have confidence in it. You know, the, the Apostle Paul kind of getting back to Moses' education and thinking, 
uh, that makes him qualified. A, a lot of Christians make that mistake as well, too. I, I can't possibly speak to someone about the Bible because I haven't been to seminary or I haven't been to some sort of special training or anything like that. You know, sometimes it's as simple as just sharing what God has done in your life. That's really all God is asking you to do, nothing more than that. Well, Paul's kind of in a similar position as, as Moses, right? In Acts 22, we learn about Paul's his pedigree. He's trained under someone called Gamaliel, which is like one of the biggest time teachers of, of that era. If you're trained under Gamaliel, you're you're considered pretty high up there. You're, you're special. You have the best education available to you. But yet, Scripture also describes Paul as not being so impressive in appearance or in his conduct, how he handled himself. Uh, the Apostle Peter, even in 2 Peter chapter 3, describes Paul's writings as, you know, they're not really easy to read. He's not the best writer. Uh, Paul also, even of himself, recognizes, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So Paul recognizes, you know, sometimes simple speech, that's the thing that glorifies God, not being eloquent and fancy and wowing people by the things that you're able to say. Paul also says, um, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, but even if I am an unskilled, unskilled in speech, he's recognizing He's not a very skillful speaker. He says, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Moses is concerned about the presentation. Paul isn't. It kind of makes me wonder, Paul being an expert in the law, if he wasn't thinking back when he was called to when Moses was called and saying, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake. I know what God is able to do. His word tells me this, and I believe it, and I, I think we should have that same mindset. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be scary, right? There is a healthy type of fear in speaking on God's behalf. James 3, that we covered just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday, says, let not many of you become teachers, because you know that will incur a more strict judgment. It's a warning. So there is that kind of healthy fear, and we don't want to mislead people. We don't want to lead them astray. We don't want to accidentally say something that would actually turn them away from God rather than bring them closer to it. So there is a, a certain uh, amount of healthy fear to it, uh, but at the same time, we really do make sure, we want to make sure, like Moses, that it is God asking us to do something. It's not our own flesh. Um, you know, very popular movement, name it and claim it. You know, just add the phrase in Jesus' name and whatever you say is going to be it. And that's just not the way that it is. You have to be in line with God's will. So moving on from there, in verses 18 through uh, 23, uh, we have this situation that comes up. It's, it's, it's very controversial. Uh, I'll tell you right up front, it has to deal with predestination versus free will. It's not a fun topic to address. And a lot of times when passages of Scripture are difficult and you really can't draw any um, sound conclusion from them, my general advice to people is just read what it says and, and move on from there. Don't, don't try and read into it, uh, but at the same time, don't ignore that it exists. You, you need to admit that it's, that it's in there. This passage is kind of like that, but there is a little bit of difference in here. One, it has some very personal significance to me. Uh, when I got saved, I was a senior in high school. I was only a few months Christian, maybe four, five months at, at that, not much into it. And I had a friend of mine who was an unbeliever, and me and another 
uh, friend that was a believer, we would invite him to youth group, and he would come sometimes. He never went to church with us, but he would come. And it was kind of an odd thing. His, his mom also was not a believer, but she knew a lot about the Bible. She could quote a lot of Old and New Testament, uh, but she wasn't a believer in it. So he had some knowledge of the Bible itself. And one time we came across this passage where it says, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back, this is in verse 21 of chapter 4, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so my friend said, how can this be a loving God? He's the one that caused Pharaoh to have a hard heart and not let them go. So he's the one that's essentially murdering the firstborn of Egypt. He didn't understand what the passage says. The other thing about this, this passage that's so significant is from that point on, I started start studying this out. I wanted to have a better answer to him. And for some of you, probably all of you, you've kind of been confronted with that same situation. Either yourself, you've asked yourself a question, and it's usually in the form which I'll state, but, or somebody else has, and it's similar to this. If God is a loving God, then what happens to people who have never heard his gospel before? Something like in Africa, what happens when they die? Because we, we preach the gospel. The only way to be saved is through Christ. That's a difficult thing for people to comprehend. It's a difficult thing to grasp. So I, I was studying out a lot of these passages for several years. I never have gotten the opportunity to get back together with him and see how things are going specifically on this. When I have met with him, he evades any talk of, of the Bible or anything like that. He, he still doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But what I've learned through that, ultimately, ultimately what my conclusion has been, which I hope to kind of share with you as we go through this, is do I trust God? Do I believe all the other things that the Bible says about him to know that whatever it is that he decides, it's the right decision. And so where this personally happened, and this is something that had really carried me through this knowledge of this, is uh, at one point, um, we, my wife was pregnant, she miscarried. And, you know, people said things, good intention, I don't, I don't have anything against them. They were trying to comfort us, it was, you know, fine. But they would say things like, well, you'll get to see him someday in heaven. That was never a concern of mine. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be cold. I'm saying it because I had studied these passages out and I had to realize that God knows all things from the very beginning. So maybe he saw the twins and said, they're not going to be born, so I'm not going to give them a soul. Or you know, maybe he said, I see the entirety of their life. So where they end up is based off of what they would have done if they had lived. You know, I, I really, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say but I've come to this conclusion that whatever God does, he's a loving God. And whatever he decided, it's the right thing. So it's never really bothered me from that, that standpoint. You know, it's still a painful process, but this aspect of it never bothered me. So when we're looking at this, this, this concept of predestination versus free will, 
while normally I'd say, hey, that's really difficult, just read what there and is moving on. The, the problem is with this passage is that this is brought up in great detail in the New Testament as well too. So it's kind of hard to just skip over it. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, almost from the beginning of chapter 1 through chapter 11, he's addressing the issue of predestination versus free will. And he goes so as far to quote this exact instance. Not, not exact instance in the sense of generically this Exodus thing is happening. No, he actually specifically talks about this Pharaoh and the things that are going on and the hardening of the heart. So it's kind of hard just to ignore it. Um, the controversy, I will say this, I, my one conclusion that I have is kind of on the extremes. There's one end of the extreme where people say everything is predestined. There's the other extreme where everybody says it's you know totally free will. I can't find any justification for that in Scripture on, on either end. There's kind of this blend in between. And so that's kind of what I ho- hope to point out. But really what we're doing here is just the start. There's so many passages that cover this. You'd be surprised if you really start digging into it. So just kind of consider this a starting point. Hopefully it's enough that if you've had that question, what happens to people in other countries? I'm not going to cover it here. I would encourage you, though, to read Acts chapter 17. That's a great passage to go over with that. If you're dealing with something, some issue at work, maybe somebody's having a hard time as well, and they're kind of wondering these things, maybe this at least will help you to sit down with them and kind of show them, hey, it sounds harsh, but look at these other things that are going on. It's, it's not exactly what appears on the surface. And that's what I've noticed about the people who argue the extremes. They usually argue from their own cultural context what they believe predestined and free will means. So they take scripture and they make it fit that. They do what's called cherry picking scripture, as I call it, which is where they'll just take a little piece of scripture and pull it out of its context. Great example of that, Psalms 14.1. If, if you haven't read Psalms 14.1, believe it or not, it actually says there is no God. If you don't believe me, look at it. But the actual context says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But if I cherry pick it, I can make it say something else. And that's what a lot of times people do with these types of passages. So we're going to go to Romans 9, and we're going to start off at that passage that um, Paul talks about. And it's going to give us some answers as to what's going on in here where um, God is saying to Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. We're going to take a look at that and see what it says. So the uh, uh, person who is hardline, everything is predestined, uh, they would only point you to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9. We're going to instead look at a bigger context of that, and then we're going to look further on in the passage because Paul summarizes something to get you to realize that he's not talking just about Pharaoh, and neither is this passage just about Pharaoh. So in chapter 9, starting in verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Paul is making the main argument against the Jewish believers, which is primarily who the the book of, of Romans is written to. They're kind of going from the standpoint of, we're from the bloodline of Abraham. Of course, we're good from God. It doesn't really matter what we do. We're, we're in. We're safe. Uh, John the Baptist has something otherwise to say. In Matthew 3, as the Pharisees are, are coming to him, John says to them, who warned you, you brood of vipers? And he says to them, don't say to yourself, this is my paraphrase, don't say to yourself that you have Abraham as, our, as your father, so therefore you're okay. If God wants children of Abraham, he can raise them up from these rocks. In other words, you're not special because of your bloodline. You're special because God has chosen you. And so Paul is dealing with this issue saying, God didn't predestine people that way. That's, that's not how it works. And he, he also does this in 1 Corinthians. We're not uh, going to spend a lot of time in it, but he also addresses this with the Christian believers in, um, or the uh, Gentile believers in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he also goes back to Moses. He starts quoting Moses and working for it as well to explain the same thing. So just kind of quickly on on this passage. Uh, When he says, you will say to me, then why does he find fault, still find fault? Paul precedes that, though, if you notice by the statement, there is no injustice in God. So he's saying right up front, whatever you think about God and your perceived injustice that God is committing, that's not true. But I admit it does look this way. So Paul is acknowledging the appearance of it himself. But he is saying, though, whatever God does, he's correct in doing it. The other response that Paul has to this, which is not so much a a response in terms of answering them, but a statement, which is going to lead later on. Paul says, um, who are you to talk back to God? Now, this is a, a Job quote. So this is, if you're familiar with the book of Job, Uh, Job's friends who are supposedly comforting him but are actually speaking against him. They say a lot of harsh things. God becomes angry and he responds back to them. And in chapters 38 through 41, you see this response. Uh, Chapter 38, verse 2, for example, God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, I hear you speaking, but you're pretty ignorant in what you're saying. You're you're not correct in it. In verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And in chapter 40, verses 7 through 9, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And so Paul is kind of giving this Job-like response saying, who do you think you are? to talk back to God and to judge him and say that he's wrong in in doing what it is that he's doing. And he continues on um, sort of explaining it uh, some more with the potter analogy. The potter analogy that Paul uses is actually also from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah uh, chapter 64. And as Isaiah is explaining it, the reference to the potter is simply a reference to God as our creator, meaning he's made us, but it's not saying that he's made our actions. 
That's the only point that Isaiah is making with it, and that's the reference that Paul is using here. But people will often confuse or use synonymously potter with puppet master. They're two different things. Paul is not saying that God is making these people and then making them do these actions. He is saying, though, that he's made these people, and now he's enduring with great patience for them to accomplish what he knows that he's going to accomplish. He's going to use them in his overall master plan. Paul goes on to continue on with the discussion. And in Romans uh, 11, he says something that should strike all of us because you then realize this isn't limited to Pharaoh. That Paul is really talking about this as all of us, including the Jews. That's what he's getting the Jews to understand. And he says in chapter 11, verse 32, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So now Paul, or yeah, Paul takes what was originally said in Exodus to Moses regarding a hardening and a mercy, and now says that applies to everybody. Uh, the CSB translation, I like the way it puts it, it says where God has imprisoned all in disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So all of us, from the very beginning, none of us are better than Pharaoh. We've all been enslaved the same way. It's when God comes in and shows mercy to us that we're able to step out of that fire. But there's a, a certain amount of responsibility that we have, and that's where free will comes in, which the Bible also speaks about. So going quickly, in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, James says this. We went through this a few weeks ago as well. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says this, and this is the one where he also again goes back to Moses. So if you want to kind of get a bigger picture of it, go back at least to verse 1 of chapter 10 and start reading from there where he starts with Moses and then starts working forward up to uh, the uh, Gentile believers in, in uh, Corinth. So he says this, Where it is written, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So we kind of see this sort of this intertwining. There are some, some things we know are predestined. Book of Revelation is a good example. God is going to win, period. He has decided that, and that is the way that it is going to happen. And we see events happening along that way. The question is, how does it all fit together? And the Bible never really gives us a clear answer to it. All we can say is that when we look at the picture of, the Bible, or of God in the Bible as a whole, just like how if I go to Psalm 14 and I say there is no God, if we look at the rest of the Bible, we know that's not what it's saying. We can even tell just from that one context alone that that's not what it's saying. So when we look at the Bible as a whole, we see things like God sent his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That Christ, while we were still sinners, died for us, right? So he didn't ask us to fix ourselves up first. It was already while we were in that very lowly state. So we see free will coming into there when temptation comes, and again, Paul ties us back to Moses as well, so there's no reason to believe that this is only for uh, New Testament believers. When temptation comes, God is actually there providing a way out. He's not the one that's doing the tempting. He's not the tempter himself. 
So when Moses is doing these things, bringing it back to him, we kind of see uh, some things in Scripture that make it a little bit clear. Jeremiah 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. God knows things about people ahead of time. In Romans 8, so again, going back to Romans, Romans 8, 28, 31, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And it goes on from there. So God has this foreknowledge of people, and he works things together for the good of those who love him, but he knew ahead of time what would happen. In Genesis 15, so now we're going to go back specifically to Moses. We're looking at Moses, what is accomplishing here. In Genesis 15, it's the story of Abram at this point. He hasn't been renamed to Abraham. And it is proclaimed to Abraham, God said to Abram, sorry about that, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So God's stating he knows what's going to go on, and he has a plan for it. We learn later on in Genesis 17, there's a covenant sign, which we'll cover later on. But we're also seeing at this point, leading up to Exodus 3, God says this about Pharaoh. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. God knows what it is going to take to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. And that's the context with, with what he's working in. We never get a full answer, though. But we do know God's overall character, that he does love people, and he is not the tempter, and he is trying to provide an escape for people out of their sin. So looking in verses 24 to 26, going on from there, Uh, Another kind of difficult passage. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So what is it that's going on here? All kinds of theories out there. I'm only going to put one out there just so you have something. I mean, you can research this later on if you want. But it's an old Jewish oral tradition. goes back long before the time of Christ. Now remember in uh, Exodus, uh, Jethro is described as a priest of Midian, meaning he's a priest of idol worship. He's polytheistic. He worships several false gods all at the same time. The Jewish tradition is that Moses, in order to marry Zipporah, had to dedicate his firstborn son to become a priest of idol worship later on. So he had to follow in Jethro's footsteps. And because of that, that's why he hasn't been circumcised. And so that's why God here is seeking to kill Moses. Moses is supposed to be fulfilling that covenant promise that deliverance that's coming out. And here Moses is himself breaking it. And obviously there's some understanding about what it is that's going on because Zipporah takes a flint knife and she is the one that does the circumcision of their son. She obviously knows, Moses, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. God is going to strike you down, so therefore I'm going to do it. And then God is at peace. He shows mercy. There's repentance in there. You know, why God was seeking to uh, actually put him to death, we, we don't know for sure. Uh, sometimes when it talks about uh, cutting people off uh, from Israel, it does, it does mean that the person is to be put to death. So in Genesis 17, Abraham, the sign of the covenant, this is where circumcision is giving long before Moses. 
God as a sign of the covenant between he and Abraham, Abraham says this, uh, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, shall, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with the money from, from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it could be as a result of this, that's the cutting off. Moses has broken the covenant and God says, you're going to be cut off and I'm going to kill you. It could also be later on uh, in Deuteronomy, we do learn that anybody who tries to lead somebody into another uh, Israelite into idol worship, that person who tries to lead another into idol worship is to be put to death. And here Moses is leading his own son and become a, a priest of idol worship if the Jewish tradition is, is true. But we do know he's broken the very covenant that he's supposed to be fulfilling. So uh, Zipporah takes action, and God says there's repentance, and he forgives and moves on, just like he's done in the New Testament as well too. We've all sinned against him. He sacrificed his only son, and there's repentance. If we are willing to receive it, that forgiveness, we repent and we follow him. Right. So then, kind of in closing up here, looking at verses 27 through 31. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped him. To me, this is one of those things where we really should have this same mindset. We may have not been physically present at the, the time that this was happening, but don't we know uh, from New Testament as well that God is concerned about us? I mean, Philippians 4 says so, right? Be anxious in nothing but in prayer. Bring your request before God. I mean, it sounds to me like he still cares about us. Are, but are we so fearful like Moses that we won't believe it unless it's right in front of our face? In other words, what I'm trying to say, when we look back at Exodus and all the things are going, are we willing to believe that the God of the Old Testament is still the same God of the New Testament and he cares about us as much as he did the people of Israel, Moses, and anybody else, King David, that you want to look at. The answer should be yes. And so again, if God is calling you out to speak in whatever way, shape, or form, maybe it's evangelizing out at the street, handing out Bibles, sharing, you know, doing something on college campuses, doing something at your work, uh, doing something in your neighborhood. If God is putting it on your heart to do it, Shouldn't we be willing to do it? Or should we be like Moses where, eh, I don't really know. 
You know, if you were here last Sunday when we covered James chapter 4, if you remember what the very last verse was that Sean covered in that, it's him who knows the good he ought to do or the right he ought to do and does not do it, then to him it is sin. We're really not much different than Moses when you think about it. We can relate to him a lot. And we can look to how God has used him in spite of his weaknesses, and we should be encouraged by that. When we're running into these challenges, challenging passages, you know, things like predestination and free will, you know, yeah, study them out, take a look at it. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know the answer, but also don't be afraid to sit down with a person and say, I don't know, but I do know this about God, that he loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, that whosoever believes in him. Remember those key passages of scripture and share that with people. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be nervous about it. Trust in God. If you mess it up, confess it to God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I messed it up. But God is there. He can forgive you. He forgave Moses. He was going to put him to death. But once there was repentance, God said, okay, we're good. Just like the snake, the bronze snake on the staff. He was putting people to death. They turned. They repented. God forgave He's always a forgiving God, so let's not forget that. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I just thank you for the opportunity that I've had to uh, just share some of what you've put on my heart in this passage, to share with others how uh, it's been an encouragement to me, Lord. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we go out into your world, uh, not only tonight, but and the rest of this week, Lord, but each day, I pray that we would not forget what it is that you've accomplished in your word, the circumstances that you've overcome, Lord, so that when we are going through our own struggles and it seems like there's simply no way out, that the bad that we see coming is just going to happen. Help us to understand, Father, that you are there for us, Lord. Just as we've seen with uh, God taking uh, Moses, who has all kinds of faults in using him, Lord, in a mighty and powerful way. Help us to understand that that can be us as well, too, and that it may not be as big and grand, but it's just as important, Father, to you, that each person that we have the opportunity to share the gospel with, Lord, you love them just as much as anybody else, and you desire for them to know you. Help us, Lord, to be courageous, and when we aren't, Father, to still just trust in you, and to step out and to take that risk, Lord, even though it's not what we want to do. And just pray, Lord, that in all that we do, that we would bring glory to you, that you would give us the words to say, that you would give us a heart that sees people the way that you do and loves them as you do and is as forgiving to them as you are, Father. I pray, Lord, that by our actions, the things that we do, the things that we say, by the way that uh, we interact with one another and we spend time with you, I pray that your word would be fulfilled in our lives and that people would know that we are your disciples because of the love that we have for one another. And that would provide us with opportunities to share the gospel with them, Lord. Help us when these difficult questions um, get asked of us, Lord. Um, I didn't do so well with my friend, Lord, but I, I pray that in the future, uh, I would do better, and I think all of us want to do better, Lord, and I pray that you would be with us in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.